We're on the record. I'm Sheila Cass. Good morning. For weeks, headlines have focused on the war in Gaza. Its horrific images and heartbreaking death toll may be devouring all the compassion the public has to give. But still, even if overshadowed, the war in Ukraine drags on. In Washington this week, legislators are moving to link funds for Israel with arms for Ukraine. More on that later in the show. First, We'll talk about the situation in Ukraine with the dean of the University of Maryland School of Public Health, who spoke at the International Healthcare Summit in Kyiv this month. Dr. Boris Lushniak came to College Park six years ago after 27 years as a federal public health official. Lushniak was deputy U.S. Surgeon General and then acting Surgeon General during the Obama administration. He joins us by Zoom. Welcome back to the show. It's great being here with you, Sheila. Thank you. Ukraine is not only a professional health question for you, it's personal. Tell us about your connection. It is quite personal. I was born in Chicago. I'm born as an American on U.S. soil, but two Ukrainian parents, um, parents who escaped a previous war in Europe, World War II. Uh, And so my story begins in villages in Western Ukraine, where both my parents were born, where I still have family to this day. And back in 1945, at the end of the war, parents had to leave a war-torn country. Uh, And they settled uh, in displaced persons camps in Germany for four years, waiting for that golden ticket out, which took them to the United States. Uh, As the rest of the story unfolds, it was time spent in Chicago, where I grew up in a very Ukrainian neighborhood, speaking Ukrainian as a first language, being raised at the time as a patriotic American, but also a patriotic Ukrainian, because the times were very much different. It was the time of the Soviet Ukraine. So even the Ukrainian language was not thought of well in in Ukraine itself. Uh, and, you know, parents raised me to, to re- realize that hopefully someday there will be an independent Ukraine. And so, therefore, our generation plays a key role in terms of making sure that that continuity of, of, of patriotism for Ukraine, love of the language, love of our family members out there continues. So this is quite the personal journey for me. So your first visit to Ukraine was when? First visit was right after independence. So in the early 90s, 1991, uh, my wife and I, who's also a physician, uh, ended up doing a uh, volunteer mission to Western Ukraine. Uh, It was to provide healthcare in in two mobile units. Uh, We traveled across the countryside of a newly independent Ukraine. Uh, at the same time, taking care of individuals uh, out in, in, you know, in small villages of Western Ukraine, at the same time, interacting with the Ukrainian healthcare system, with, with the professionals there, with the physicians there. And at the same time, for me, it was for the first time meeting family members. Well, what was the, the purpose of the International Healthcare Summit in Kyiv in early November? So I had the opportunity. This was my first visit back uh, since the war began. Uh, and so the purpose of this International Healthcare Summit was really to grab, you know, to, to get a group of, of uh, healthcare providers, uh, physicians, uh, people who are involved in non-government organizations, people from industry, from the private sector, uh, both from uh, the United States as well as from Western European countries, 
uh, to be able to have a in-person interactive meeting, uh, to be able to share not only uh, knowledge about uh, public health and some of the public health issues that occurred during times of war, to be able to have that exchange, uh, but also it got really into some of the, the expertise that the Ukrainians have developed because of this unfortunate and tragic wartime scenario uh, in that, uh, you know, uh, they are really on the front lines right now of taking care of severely injured uh, uh, soldiers. Uh, and so there is a knowledge base that the Ukrainians actually are developing uh, that we're learning from. So I would say this was a three-day meeting that was an exchange of information. It was an ability for us to come from both the United States and Western European countries to be able to show our solidarity with the Ukrainian providers, with their department uh, or Ministry of Defense uh, healthcare providers and, and, and others in leadership roles at the Ministry of Defense, with the Ministry of Health of Ukraine, uh, and for us to have this uh, ability to exchange information, to share knowledge, uh, and to provide that sense of solidarity with the Ukrainians. That's Boris Lushniak, Dean of the University of Maryland School of Public Health, on the record on WIPR. I'm Sheila Cast. We're talking about his most recent trip to Ukraine, where his parents are from, his first visit since the Russian invasion 21 months ago. When I think of public health, I think of promoting health, preventing disease. But in a war zone, I think of acute medical care, fixing wounds. How does a country do both? Well, I think certainly, you know, what's what's always in, in you know, in the forefront is to make sure that that the physicians and other healthcare providers are out there taking care of those injured uh, and, and wounded in the war. That is the acute phase of injuries, right? So if you have a terrible injury on the war front, whether it's in a warfighter or whether it's in a civilian, you obviously have to have a healthcare system that's able to save lives, if at all possible. Uh, but at the same time, there are consequences of war that have a deeper effect on the general population. And it goes beyond just the bombs and the missiles blowing up and, and the, the, the terrible, devastating injuries that occur from mines or from bullets. Uh, here we have uh, what I call uh, the, the concept of war as a complex public health emergency. Uh, and so in the midst of all this are not just the immediate repercussions of the wartime damage to human bodies, to the population. It is really the, the, the consequences, the further public health consequences of that wartime. Yeah, uh, you presented some shocking numbers in your keynote address, like 1,280 attacks on healthcare facilities in Ukraine last year and this year, and also more than one in five Ukrainians cannot get the medications they need, like blood pressure meds, ordinary citizens. Yeah, I mean, you know, when you look at sort of the numbers that have been compiled by the United Nations, this this idea of the infrastructure of healthcare being affected, so hospitals being bombed out, uh, medical ambulances being targeted, uh, individuals, you know, uh, who are healthcare providers being uh, targeted as well. So you have that direct impact on the healthcare system in the midst of a war. Uh, at the same time, you have the uh, the issues that that go along with with not only access of the general population to the healthcare system, much of the effort now being put into the war fighter scenario of of saving lives as well as ultimately 
uh, having to deal with the repercussions of wartime injuries, but at the same time is access for the general population to their own doctors, access to finding the medications that are necessary. These are amongst the, the incredible impacts that wartime has, right, upon healthcare facilities and staff, uh, access to care, uh, medications and medical supplies. All that is now deeply affected by a wartime scenario. Did you have answers in your presentation about how to deal with all this? Well, I think first of all is is realizing that we unfortunately live in the world uh, where you know one of the major fundamental issues for health promotion, uh, and and this is actually put out by by something called the Ottawa Charter for Health Promotion back in 1986, and it talked about what are the fundamental conditions and resources necessary for health. And here I'm talking big picture health. I always cite with my students here at the University of Maryland, the definition of health as put out by the World Health Organization. It is complete physical, mental, and social well-being, and not merely the absence of disease and, and, and infirmity. And part of the fundamental conditions that are necessary for this definition of health, first and foremost, is peace, peace. So, so to a large extent, I, as both a preventive medicine doctor, right, I'm trained to be looking at the world of not just solving the problem, you know, by, by writing prescriptions, by solving the problem, by doing surgeries, but in essence, trying to prevent the problems from occurring. So when we look at the idea of how, what is the solution to this problem, peace is really part of the major solution. At the same time is making sure that that medical facilities are not targeted in the midst of all this. Uh, making sure that supply routes are still kept up so that people do have access to their medications, do have access to vaccinations, immunizations. These are the basic tenets of public health. Ultimately, the other fundamental conditions that are necessary, and again, which we as preventive medicine physicians have to be looking at is shelter, education, food, income, making sure there's a stable ecosystem, sustainable resources, and social justice and equity. Now, all this lumped together are really part of the aspects that are necessary for health promotion in our society. And all of this sounds very distant from what the situation in Ukraine is and what the situation in Gaza is right now. It's very different, the, the distance, with, without a doubt. Uh, I think what I learned during my one-week spe time span in, in, in Kyiv in these last few weeks was realizing that, you know, for example, Kyiv as, as the capital of Ukraine still functions, even in the midst of war. Right? During the daytime, you know, people are out in the streets. There's traffic moving through town. Businesses are, are reopened for the most part. There is a flow to that city, and yet that flow is disrupted intermittently by air raid sirens going off, by having this vulnerability occurring. And so what you have to realize is that all this seems quite distant until you realize that there is this sense of a vulnerability in that society. Just spending a week there has given me a whole different perspective of what it means to exist in the midst of a war. Not the, the you know, just the daily, you know, uncertainties out there, but in fact, how it deals with both not only the, the physical health of the population, but the mental health of that population. You're in a health meeting and the air raid sirens goes goes off. What's what happens? Well, you know, it happened on several occasions. We were there at one time. There was almost this sense, and and it's very interesting how high tech has come to the world of war. 
uh, we are all told to put on uh, on our on our smartphones uh, certain apps, and, and the apps would actually give us a warning, much like we get warnings here about amber alerts or silver alerts saying that there's a problem out there, right? Here, you we get a warning saying, okay, air raid sirens are going to be going off soon. There's perhaps missiles or drones that are potentially coming into your area. Do something about it. Right. Uh, on, on one of the occasions, we all filtered out and, and the conference center at, at a hotel had an air raid uh, uh, shelter uh, in, in the parking structure down below ground. Uh, and so we, we gathered there. Uh, at other times, we were once out uh, in the city and I turned to a friend of mine who lives there and I said, what should we do? Uh, and he said, well, chances are it won't happen here in this neighborhood. So continue to eat your lunch. So there is that sense, again, within the general population of how individuals are dealing with this. You know, this happens, you know, on a, you know, at, at times, multiple times a day, uh, certainly multiple times a week. Uh, even after we left Cave last week, uh, it was a relatively quieter week within the capital that we were there. But within a few days were massive drone attacks back in the capital again. Society continues to go on, and yet you can almost feel the pressure. You can see the pressure in people's eyes of living under those circumstances for the last year and a half. You told me that there were three points you heard from almost every Ukrainian you spoke with. Yeah, I think these these points, again, I was almost made a pact with one of the physicians. He was a, a, a doctor named Konstantin Humenyuk. And he is the chief surgeon uh, in the uh, Ukrainian uh, army. And he tell, told me, when you go back home, tell people these three things. Point number one is thank them. Thank them for their support to this point in time, because there's no way, in his words, that we would have been able to sustain these levels of attack without the support of the United States, without the support of, of NATO, of the European Union countries and other nations around the globe. So point number one is, is thank you. Point number two is we will continue, right? We have no choice, right? Because this is our nation. And, and you know, uh, in a simplified fashion, you know, if, if Russia laid down its arms, the war would be over. If Ukraine laid down its arms, Ukraine would be over. So there is that sense from the Ukrainians of point number two is they will you know, continue because they are fighting for their nation. They are fighting for their identity. The third point is please help us to sustain the amount of support that you've had. We are worried about you know, people forgetting about us. We are worried about that people, much like the Ukrainians already do, are getting tired of this war. And there was almost a plea in that third point. Please don't forget about us. Boris, thanks for talking to us. It's my pleasure. Thank you. Boris Lushniak heads the School of Public Health at the University of Maryland College Park. He gave a keynote speech at the recent International Healthcare Summit in Kiev, Ukraine, from where his parents emigrated to the U.S. after World War II. We have a link to the summit's website at the On the Record page at WYPR.org. Short break now on the record. When we're back, what's the outlook for that U.S. funding Ukrainians hope for? I'm Sheila Cass. Stay with us.
Welcome back to On the Record, Sheila Cast. Four times since Russia invaded Ukraine 21 months ago, Congress has voted to send aid, more than $100 billion. Those votes were bipartisan. Last August, President Biden requested another $24 billion for Ukraine. The turmoil in Congress this fall has created a fair amount of confusion, so we asked the longest-serving Democrat in the House, former two-time Majority Leader Steny Hoyer, to help us understand where things are headed. Hoyer has represented the 5th Congressional District in Southern Maryland since 1981. Welcome back to the show, Congressman Hoyer. Really glad to be with you. Thank you very much for inviting me. Ukraine says they can't fight much longer without more ammunition, more weapons. Is Congress moving quickly to put a package together? Congress is working at a snail's pace, Sheila. Uh, And you were very kind to say confusion. There's been chaos in the Congress of the United States. Um, A a speaker has been deposed. Uh, They took three weeks to replace that speaker after going through uh, three of their other leaders first and not being able to get a majority of votes. Uh, and so we lost three weeks of legislative uh, time. Uh, and then we lost uh, another week uh, with the new speaker just sort of getting his uh, feet uh, uh, wet. Uh, we did uh, pass a continual resolution which kept the government operating, uh, but we did not do either Ukraine or Uh, aid or uh, aid to Israel uh, as it confronts uh, Hamas uh, and the carnage that occurred uh, in Israel on October 7th. So uh, it is is beyond shameful that we have not acted uh, in a a way befitting the emergencies that exist in Ukraine and Israel. The House did pass an aid package that was just for Israel, correct? Well, no, it was not just for Israel, and that was the problem. Normally, what should have happened is we should have passed a $14.4 billion uh, package uh, for Israel. That would have gotten well over 400 votes out of the 435 votes. But the Republicans uh, uh, decided under their new speaker to add another element that was very controversial, and that Senator Schumer said not only would not pass the Senate, would never be considered by the Senate. So when the Republicans passed their bill and, uh, on Israel, almost every Democrat voted no, not because they were against aid to Israel, but because the rider that they had put on the bill was unacceptable and uh, to the Senate so that the money would never get to Israel. And in fact, it hasn't. We passed it, but the Republicans knew at the time they passed it that it would not be considered by the Senate. So it was sort of pretense, uh, not reality. Uh, and a, a damn shame uh, that that uh, occurred. And I've urged uh, Speaker Johnson to put that bill on the floor, $14.4 billion, uh, aid to Israel as they uh, fight to protect their country and their people. Uh, and it still uh, has not been done. So, uh, and, and you, you add that to the Ukraine, uh, the failure to fund Ukraine, and respond to the president's supplemental request. Uh, it is a uh, very, very limp trumpet uh, that we sound uh, to the despots of the world. Uh, we need to uh, step up to the plate, do the right thing for freedom, for democracy, for international law, and we need to do it now. 
That's Maryland Congressman Steny Hoyer, longest-serving Democrat in the House, on the record on WIPR. I'm Sheila Cast. We're talking about the outlook for continued U.S. aid to Ukraine. I want listeners to hear what the new Speaker of the House, Mike Johnson, said about aid to Ukraine on Monday of this week. WFLA News Channel 8 recorded his press conference. Uh, Ukraine is, a, is another priority. Of course, we can't allow Vladimir Putin to march through Europe, and we understand the necessity of assisting there. What we've said is that if there is to be additional assistance to Ukraine, which most members of, co- of Congress believe is important, we have to also work in changing our own border policy. And so there's been a lot of thoughtful negotiation ongoing uh, with that. I think most of our Senate colleagues recognize that those two things need to move together because we owe that to the American people. That's what they're demanding that we do. I had gotten the impression that tying aid to Ukraine to U.S. policy about its own borders was essentially a way for Republicans to keep Ukraine aid from being approved. Am I right about that, or is it a real possibility? Whether that was their intent or not, that's the reality of what's done. Uh, We've not considered Ukraine. Ukraine uh, needs the resources to confront Russian totalitarianism, despotism, and the breaking of international law. So uh, although Johnson said we needed to uh, do that, you can bet your sweet life that Vladimir Putin thinks they're going to be fighting about their own border, and uh, I can proceed apace uh, without uh, America sending the resources that uh, his Ukrainian victims uh, need. So what do you think happens then? What are you looking, are you expecting the Senate to send some kind of package to the House that includes (laughs) Israel, Ukraine, and Taiwan? Or is it stalemated in the Senate? Well, I, I don't know that stalemate because they say there are discussions going on. My, my point is, it's, it's sort of like the Israel money. You know, if it's important to send it to Ukraine, if it's important not to allow Putin, as as uh, Johnson said, uh, to uh, think that he's free to commit the international crimes that he's committing, then we ought to send the money. And we ought to send a very, very direct uh unequivocal message that we're going to support Ukraine and to see it uh, victorious and in defending its country and its people uh, from criminal attack. To say to Putin, oh, well, we may send it if we can work a deal on border security in the United States. Uh, Putin is going to laugh uh, at us because he has seen us unable to reach a border agreement uh, in some uh, uh, tw- 10 years now. 2013, the Senate passed a bipartisan immigration reform bill that the House Republicans refused to take up, <clears throat> which was unfortunate. So uh, if, if I'm Putin, I'm thinking if that's contingent, uh, you know, Ukraine's not going to get the money. Uh, now, I happen to think that uh, the border security of the United States is a legitimate debate as to how we can uh, make sure that our country is safe uh, and that uh, uh, we make sure that neither drugs nor criminals are coming in, but that people who are seeking legitimate asylum under American law uh, can get a hearing. Uh, But that's a very serious issue. 
but it should not be an impediment to doing what America says it wants to be, and that is the beacon of freedom and democracy and international law throughout the world. We need to step up the plate. We need to step up the plate now. And uh, Speaker Johnson needs to put the Ukrainian bill on the floor and the Israel uh, bill on the floor. And very frankly, Sheila, the Ukrainian bill would get over 300 votes. Over the last seven votes that we've had on Ukraine, it's gotten over 300 votes in support of uh, Ukraine. Uh, the Israel uh, bill would have over 400 votes. So there's no excuse for not putting those on the floor other than trying to leverage freedom and democracy and international law uh, on something that the Republicans want or are pressing. A very sobering view. Thank you for talking to us. Thank you, Sheila. Steny Hoyer has represented Southern Maryland in Congress for 43 years and served two stints as Majority Leader. I'm Sheila Cass. Glad you're with us on the record. Join us again tomorrow. <laughs>